gentlemen. May I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Folks, we're in the middle of another great show, having some great conversations with some amazing people, and definitely enjoying a lot of amazing things going on. As a matter of fact, we just finished doing a Black Business Expo, and of course, that was a very powerful event, and we're definitely looking forward to having some more great conversations with truly amazing people. So always have some great conversations going on in our world, and of course, people are paying attention to a number of things that are happening in society. So we know a lot of folks are paying attention and definitely seeing a lot of things that are going on in the world and trying to figure out their role in what that is and how they can play whatever that role may be. So like I said, whether it's the things going on with the coronavirus, whether it's things going on with a number of other things in society, there are a lot of things that people are concerned about. We know people have been paying attention to the forest fires, paying attention to that that is going on in California and a number of other places around on the West Coast. And, of course, we know that New Orleans was just recently devastated as well with things that they had happening in their world. So definitely that is some of the things that are happening as well. So definitely we have a lot of great conversations going on in that regard. So I know a lot of people are very much concerned about things that are happening in their world and things that are going on where they are as well. So definitely these are some truly amazing times. We're glad to have one of our guests joining us as well. So definitely I'm going to bring him on and see what some of his conversation is all about and what's going on in his world. But a lot of folks have been paying attention to a number of things, and, of course, we're glad to have folks enjoying what we have happening here as well. So definitely we want folks to tune in, learn what's happening, and see what's happening in that world. So definitely some truly amazing conversations, and a lot of people are paying attention to that. Yes, we're definitely seeing a lot of people. Yep. So a lot of great conversations taking place, and we're going to bring up our guests. I think that we've got a doorbell that says that somebody has joined us, so we're going to see who we've got in the house. So definitely I'm going to unmute, and we're going to see who we've got in the house and all of that. So Welcome, folks. Um, who do we have in the house here in the studio with us? And can you share a little bit about yourself? My name is Yolanda Heidi. I work in the retail field for a very long time. I'm right Hello. here, IPC. IPC. Hey, IPC. I'm glad IPC is in the house. How are you doing, IPC? IPC is a truly amazing poet. Glad to have IPC in the house with me. He does some great things and some amazing things in our community, but I would love to hear from you what you've got going on and what's happening in your world. IPC, we met when I decided to join the wonderful world of Clubhouse because I did not know about Clubhouse and uh, heard people talking about this great app, but then I found that it was only for 
iPhone users, and I unfortunately am an Android person, so I was going like, well, it ain't for me. But then y'all changed the rules and let Android people in there, and then I discovered this great creative community. I was up late last night talking to you and Consuela and all of these amazing folks and everything, and we were standing up listening to cello music and listening to poetry and everything else. So share with us a little bit about how you got involved, and you have this rich history, too. Like When I read that this is a man that performed with and did work with George Lucas, I'm like, Wow! I've met somebody that knows George Lucas and worked with this man, and I definitely was a Star Wars fan and a fan of a lot of the other great science fiction that came out of that universe. So just share a little bit with our audience a little bit about who IPC is. Uh, I go by IPC, and that stands for I Paint Creatures, and that's basically my uh, artist brand. I'm a full-time professional creative. I'm a multidiscipline artist. I love uh, making music, I play several instruments, and I'm a vocalist, and a, a rapper, and a scatter, and uh, I also love to paint and draw fantastical uh, worlds from my imagination. I'm a visual storyteller, and I love to perform uh, spoken word poetry. I'm an award-winning spoken word poet and an oral storyteller. And uh, over in the fantasy world and the creature world, I specialize in Japanese yokai, which are yokai are, are basically uh, Japanese folklore creatures. And I've had the grand opportunity to work for uh, such luminaries as uh, the incredible George Lucas, uh, creator of Indiana Jones and Star Wars. And I've also had the opportunity to work up in Redmond, Washington, with uh, uh, some of the forward thinkers with uh, Bill Gates, team at Microsoft, and got the grand opportunity to also work in the Knowledge Navigator and the Futuristic Division of Apple Computers, and uh, make great Steve Jobs was still around. And uh, what I do with a lot of those companies is uh, brought uh, visual storytelling and tested a lot of their hardware and. Uh, um, basically prepared for the future that we're living now. And uh, I uh, get on Clubhouse because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an independent artist, so I, I was just uh, putting my brand out there and uh, put out a, a book uh, two years ago that was, uh, was crowdfunded that has all my art and stories and poems and sketches and uh, working on a huge uh, epic tale just like Harry Potter or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings that is called... Uh, Matsu, so I landed on Clubhouse because uh, they said uh, I am an Apple user because I'm from California and uh, all the creative divisions of like Lucasfilm and uh, uh, of course worked at Apple so I fell in love with their product line to be very creative and so uh, one day I heard uh, on YouTube some guys saying Clubhouse and I'm like what is that and uh Basically, Googled it and found it was an audio app, and at first I thought it was a joke because I was like, man, we're going retro? Like, we can do full video in HD and 4D, so, like, why are we going backwards? And uh, then the article on Google said uh, it's not open to everyone. You have to be invited, uh, but definitely they, they recommend go over there if you have a brand and make sure, you know, someone doesn't take your name. And I've been doing iPaint Creatures for probably, like, uh, about, about six years now, so... I headed over there to make sure no one took iPen Creatures, and I signed up, and then within like five minutes, uh, an old uh, poetry uh, colleague of mine contacted me and says, you're in. So I landed in this thing, and I was like, what are you doing here? And the first thing I saw was a poetry house, and so I wandered in the poetry house and trying to figure out what was going on, and they're like, whoa, we read in your bio you're a poet. 
will you spit a poem? So I spit a poem, and I think I got, like, maybe, like, close to 45 followers. So I was like, well, wow. this is kind of home. So that's my story of Clubhouse. Well, that's a fascinating story and definitely one that I can resonate with and relate to. But, yeah, they seem to be a great platform. Like I said, I've met all kinds of creatives there, whether they're hairdressers or artists or um, definitely people that are doing a variety of ways of even getting their brand out there. I was not sure how – I'm still not sure how I feel about the whole follow kind of mentality that goes on in Clubhouse where you're building your follows by doing that whole rules of engagement kind of methodology, which I understand. But sometimes I'm going like, is it really building my brand? Is it really not? building my brand so i'm still trying to put out the jury on that and everything but i definitely love the clubhouse space and think it's truly amazing it's interesting you talked about it being retro ipc and the first time i started telling people about clubhouse it reminded me and i'm in that late 50s category it reminded me of the old party lines because you know growing up in like the 70s and everything and definitely having i know in new york there was the village voice and here we have a magazine called the independent and you would see like those old phone lines where people would call and it would be people that would just be having the phone lines before the internet kind of really took off the way it has so when the clubhouse app came i'm like isn't this just party lines reinvented <laughs> But, you know, they say all yeah, great inventions just wind up, wind up getting reinvented. <laughs> yeah, well, one magical thing happened. I realized that when my one buddy brought me on there, he was saying, you know, the, the bio is your key. And I'm like, what? And, uh, you know, my background is my family was in the Japanese internment camp, so I was kind of raised, you know, without sharing my culture because they were in fear that it would happen again. And uh, the story of the clubhouse is the first time uh, I found myself uh, using my bio to the full extent, and it actually worked. So um, it was a bit, kind of a healing experience. Yep. And you talk about the, your heritage. I don't know if you've ever met this young poet by the name of G. Um, G. Yamaskazi, I think is the last name. But he's a young poet from here in North Carolina, but he's originally from uh, – he's traveled around, so I know he spent some time in um, the – L.A. area, along with Kane Smago and others, but he's known me for a while. As a matter of fact, I remember when he was a young high school kid just getting into the spoken word community. So sometimes when he comes back to the cultural arts center that I'm part of, he'll be like, yeah, there's Uncle Mark, or they definitely give me respect as an elder and all of that, because when we held the national competition in Durham, he was actually, you know, going around doing drinking and other things that you're not supposed to be doing as a teenager. But the adults recognized his talent, <laughs> recognized what he was about, and let him get away with things that we probably were not supposed to let him get away with. But we still let get away with it and he's definitely blowing up on that, that national scene so it does sound like you do know the gentleman that i'm talking about yep i know george very well and i actually have mentored him okay cool yeah george and, is fantastic uh, you know, like i said you know, so you know Desan then I know Desan very well. Desan and me are like yeah. very good peers. Desan runs the Haytai um, hey Poetry Slam, and I actually work for Haytai. So I've known Desan for years, you know a lot of those crews. So I know Desan, know Church the Poet, you know, uh, you know the gentleman out of New York and that whole crew. And I'm actually good friend with uh, Garland Thompson Jr., who I know represents that California area with kind of that beatnik poetry scene that he brings out, with kind of like beatnik beats African-American poetry that he's been doing for years because his dad was a leading proponent of black theater before he passed away at the National Black Theater Festival and I actually helped organize one of the memorials for him so yeah I know that we probably have a lot of common friends yeah I've featured at the Bull City Slam and uh, 
Uh, I've ha- have a, I've toured through uh, your area many times in Winston Salem and Charlotte and Asheville. Yeah, there's some great poetry coming out of there. Like Kelly Ray has done some amazing work. Definitely a number of the other works have done some great things like Trent, uh, um, Petrina and a number of other great poets that are here, Kimberly and a number of other amazing ones. So I'm sure that if we ran across, we'd probably be like, oh, yeah, I know who you are. I know you by face and by uh, voice. So we know we recognize each other by voice all the time. But even when I was hearing the voice, I was like, I think I've met this man before. So it does not surprise me that we've traveled in some of those same circles and all of that. And I'm proud to say uh, when when I used to tour – it's been a while, you know, especially before the pandemic. Um, I uh, basically would always go to all these venues, and I'm a two-time world head-to-head haiku champion, so I would always call out for them to send their best uh, haikuster, well, that's what I call them, haiku poet, up to battle me. And I'm proud to say I'm undefeated in all of the Carolinas. They've never beaten me. Wait, wait a minute. So you meant that Leonard Moore, who was supposed to be one of our masters at Haku, took you on and he went down? Are you trying to tell me that yeah. one of our master yeah. Haku artists went down? Because I know that Leonard is supposed to, yeah. supposed to be considered one of our top Haku artists here in the Carolinas. Yeah. Took them all down. They never beat me. And I'm undefeated in New York City, too. Wow, undefeated in Durham, undefeated in the Carolinas. Now, when you say the Carolinas, you're saying that you're undefeated in both North and South Carolina. Yeah, because uh, I won my second uh, world head-to-head haiku title in Greenville. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you're just yeah. totally undefeated. Now, what about some of the more stronger areas of poetry? You know, New York's got a strong poetry community. D.C.'s got a strong poetry community. I know California does, too. I've mentioned Garland Thompson, Jr., but and definitely Texas does as well. So are you undefeated in some of those stronger cities as well or some of the stronger states? Or I'm, will you admit that un- you've gone down in some other places? I'm undefeated in all 50 states. Wow. He is undefeated in all. <laughs> yeah. Nobody can take and the man down. Just... New York City, I uh, featured, are you familiar with the New Yorkians Post Cafe? I'm very familiar with them. For me, it was uh, yeah. one of the events I went to was with Rome Neal, and Rome Neal does yeah. the banana poetry thing, and I know that yeah. I was actually sharing with a friend of mine that I met in Clubhouse the poem that we created like some 10 or 12 years ago because he always does that banana poetry um, jam that he does, and he actually had us all create a um, collaborative piece. And I do not claim to be a poet. This song will tell you I don't claim to be a poet, but I do – write on occasional prose and write some occasional things. So I stuck my prose in the middle of all of that poetry. So my prose is stuck in the middle of that uh, whole um, long piece that was created, I want to say, maybe 13, 14, 15 years ago. Yeah, well, in the new Reekin, uh I'm proud to say they didn't even send anyone up. Oh, <laughs> they didn't even bother to try to take you down. They were yeah, like, we I can't be this man. I was like, New York City, and I'm like, bring him on up. And then just I sat there for like five minutes. And no, they didn't send anyone. So I, I announced on the mic, I guess I'm undefeated in New York City. I was surprised. You were surprised that nobody tried to take you down at all. I'm surprised <laughs> as well. 
Gene, who's usually here with me, but I know he's doing some work with his um, compadre in terms of his work because he works with um, corrections and he works in the correction field of New Jersey. So as he's nearing closer to retirement, I think he's in his, well, he's younger than me, but he's probably like late 40s, early 50s. But I know that he has been, uh, when you're near retirement, then they started giving you crazy work hours. So even though we do our show on Monday, he did tell me that to last week and this week, I might have to handle it all my own with my guests and everything. I was like, no problem. I can do that. I came up in the world of radio. So <laughs> this is nothing new for me, and I can definitely handle it. But that being said, he is part of the street team for somebody else that you probably are familiar with as well, because you are a student, not just of poetry, but of hip-hop. And I'm sure that you've heard of Ninth Wonder and his whole tribe. Well, Dean is yeah. part of that squad that goes out there and handles the promotion. So they have a whole squad that handles the promotion, and Dean is a part of that squad and we actually connected through a mutual friend of ours that was involved in fashion and poetry as well as radio by the name of Ty Jones so she was doing this show that had her title in it and all of that but then she decided to go pursue life marriage and just other things and left uh, without anybody else pursuing it and the team was like well we're enjoying it so let's keep it going so we kept it going later on she tried to come back into the fold and we were like it's a whole other kind of show now She's like, oh, well, I'll go do mine. Y'all do yours. So we left all those kind of terms, but we definitely have kept that thing rolling. I think she still got her thing rolling as well, even though she's been going through some life issues. So a lot of her stuff is focused around um, some of those life issues, like around uh, cancer survival and other things. But we're glad to be part of that community with her, and I'm sure that she's glad to be part of our community as well. But it's just always fascinating seeing these connections and knowing these connections. As a youngster and being somebody that was having this Japanese background, did you always think you were going to be a creative? Because, I mean, you're very involved in the creative world, the filmmaking world, the Microsoft world, these different other worlds. Did you always think that this was going to be something you were going to pursue? Well, that's kind of a long-winged question because I basically lost my father uh, to stomach cancer when I was 10 years old. And so I basically wow. started hanging around in hospitals and, and – uh, then uh, after I lost him, the next year I was in a voice uh, Cub Scout play because my mom was just trying to wrangle me in because I was always super creative, but at first, you know, very disruptive and, <laughs> you know, a real rebel and a, a street kid because after my father died, I basically went to the streets in the Bay Area to find family. And, uh, and I was in a Cub Scout play and I basically played the strong man and it kind of bonded me and my mom because my mom went back to work, like three jobs to hold down after my father left. And so she was uh, actually doing the seamstressing on my costume and I held my left arm up in front of the mirror and it basically uh, I said I was a strong man and discovered a, a tumor on my um, left arm about the size of a softball. And right. so I basically... Went back in the hospital again, down in the Palo Alto area, the Stanford area, and uh, um, I survived that demise because the first doctor said cut off his arm and um, he only lived like three or four years longer. So I'm a person uh, on the internet that tells everyone I'm internally 14. 
because of what the yes. doctor said. So basically my mother found an alternative medicine, you know, a doctor that was uh, willing to carve it out and carved it out, and they still don't know if it was cancer or what it was, but they got it out of me and they didn't amputate. But that's where basically art started because I basically was in the uh, waiting rooms and then the year later after my father passed, you know, being in the hospital. And so I just started drawing and sketching. And uh, since I'm so broken through my uh, family heritage, I didn't know like all my ancestors are basically poets and painters and and educators and so I just started doing it and then uh, a nurse came to me one day and he's like you know those are cool little uh, creatures um, what you're drawing there and I thought I was drawing monsters and I was kind of cut off by from all the pop culture because that's around the age when you know you start learning from your friends or wanting to be like the cool kid and so I just kind of went in my own world and I started writing a lot, mainly because I went through this experience that a lot of 11-year-olds don't go through. So I was just like scribbling outside the page, and lo and behold, it was poetry. And I, then I started relating it, and this one nurse was like, you got to go paint for these kids down the hallway. And I didn't know at the time the kids down the hallway was the terminal section, all the kids that wow. basically had terminal diseases. So I just started doing these creatures, and then, of course, the nurse kept on telling me, he told me all about Dr. Seuss and all these things, and I was like, whatever, whatever. And then as I went in my teenage years, uh, it's the only thing that saved me from getting too heavy into the streets was art. So I was writing, I wasn't sharing it with anyone, but I would draw, and then with that led, of course, is my friends had hip-hop crews and punk bands, and so I started doing flyers. And so, yeah, uh, art basically saved my life. So that's, uh, I guess that would answer what you're saying is I knew I was created because it was the only thing to keep me out of jail and keep me from killing other people and killing myself. Yeah, it sounds like art definitely played a very major role in your life and definitely kept you going in a positive direction, and that's very wonderful the way that art did that for you and definitely kept that creative juices going. One of the things I was wondering is that and I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends, even some of the songs been on this show as well, is what do you find the role of art to be in society? Because I know that I've got a good friend that talks about that he really wishes that we were doing more with teaching art in our community. He's actually the founder of the live streaming uh, platform that I'm going to hopefully get you on as well that's called the International Broadcast Media. But um, he oftentimes talks about that we're in the 21st century, but our education system is stuck in the 18th century. He really wishes, because he's got a financial background and a legal background, that we talk more about financial responsibility, but also more about the arts and actually encouraged artists. So I was wondering your thoughts about that is one that has worked with some of the leading minds. I mean, you've worked with Microsoft and George Lucas, but do you feel that we're actually encouraging our artists enough and our young artists? Um, well, actually, it became full circle because uh, it took me five high schools to graduate because, you know, I had had that intense experience with my father and myself, so I had already kind of gone out in the world. So, like, them teaching me science and geography when I had a broken heart from a girl was just wasn't working. And so uh, it went full circle because I eventually uh, came up to Chico, California, where I live up in Northern California, and I did it to kind of escape the streets and, and the Bay Area and uh, kind of got fooled by an old family friend into, like, writing grants to get, you know, funded for college and then kind of got in college, and I wasn't in the college, but I was loving all the social life, you know, with the, the young girls and, and just meeting all kinds of people and then uh, gave me outlets to do my art. But it eventually led to me uh, 
one day on, I got a job in the computer lab because I started getting into technology. And then I wrote uh, this grant because it was just sitting on the desk and, and I, I worked there late night. And one day I just opened this package and it said, you know, kind of the question you're asking, what role does art have in your life and society? And so I just wrote down a whole bunch of my ideas. And at that time I had a really astute kind of logical roommate and uh, I left it on the table one night when I came home, and he, and he asked me, what is this? And I said, I don't know, this is a grant thing, and I just wrote down a bunch of my ideas, and he ended up sending it in to IBM, and, uh, and then I got funded. And so then uh, it, it paved the way for me to do a master's degree, and then I ended up doing my master's degree with an amazing lady who uh, became my master's chair, and she had a degree in quantum physics, and early childhood education with music. And so it was like a weird combination. And so it got me into uh, really, uh, for the first time, I was interested in learning and education because they said something about, uh, she was all about how people taking information in the world. And I've been going to concerts and hanging out with rock and roll bands and hip-hop crews, so I was just like whoa, I'm into that. I would like to study how people perceive. I've always wondered what happens at a concert. You know, why did everyone spend all this money and, and let alone get all messed up on drugs and alcohol to, to, to survive in there? Like, what are they doing in here besides the party? And so I studied that. So my uh, degree became uh, my master thesis is all uh, basically uh, a whole thesis all about that art and technology are not subjects. They're vehicles for learning. So, yeah, so basically to answer your question, art to me is um, essential to making lifelong learners and, and basically uh, teach people about who they truly are, their purpose in life. And I'm a strong advocate of yeah, educational reform, and I work in projects right now in the schools with kids. And um, my whole mission in life is to uh, – you know, build people's mental faculties back up, you know, their their curiosity, their imagination, their wonder, their intuition. And, and I think, uh, you know, that is the essential part to really change the world back us to being, you know, that's why I love creatures too, like being creatures instead of these, you know, logical war machines that a lot of us have become. No, definitely. It's interesting you say that because actually my dad is an artist as well. He's a photographer and was a definitely involved in civil rights and a number of other things. And, of course, he and my mom founded a community radio station that I oftentimes talk about in those clubhouse profiles and everything. But definitely when they were doing that, a lot of times they were um, – you know, wanting to encourage me, encourage my younger brother to follow our artistic uh, interests or definitely our creative interests because I don't know that Malik has necessarily any strong artistic interests that I'm aware of, even though he's a gamer and definitely is involved in that game world as a fan and as a participant, not as a creator of them. But definitely as my nephews were born, and I don't have any kids, but as my nephews were born, I remember that my dad would be showing them um things around scientific things like, you know, what's going on with a worm or a rabbit or the grass and different other things. And I'm sure that some people were probably like thinking to themselves, why is uh, Jim Lee doing this? Because these are young kids and their brains aren't developed enough. They're probably not even getting this. But dad's attitude was always one to kind of that attitude that people have had about women listening to music when the baby is still in the womb. But I think that's dad's attitude toward education was that start teaching them at a very young age and hopefully it will resonate and develop with them as they grow into the young men that they are soon to become as they are now 
preteens. This is their birth month, so they are 12 and 13 and all of that. So August is their birth month, and this is the year that they turn 12 and 13, one being born in 2008 and the other being born in 2009. But what do you say to people when they tell you that they feel that you shouldn't teach young people at a young age or at a very young age? Because I'm actually of the opinion that the earlier the better. Yeah, well, I'm doing a project right now because I live right below Paradise, California, which was uh, in 2018, the wildflowers uh, wiped out the whole town. And so I'm uh, part of a project right now where uh, Butte County is the county I'm in and Paradise is in. Uh, Butte County Office of Education has gathered up like uh, 19 artists in all different multiple disciplines and we go into the schools and uh, we work with the kids uh, trauma and we do art. So uh, the last project I just finished about a month ago um, was a residency with uh, first grade and first graders are like, they're my favorite to work with, you know, because when you start getting older, they, they start getting the cool. And so the first graders are like so amazing because um, a lot of my mission is, goes back to that professor who had the quantum physics and the early education. She had a really unique way, and I don't know if you're, anyone is familiar with, like, Howard Gardner's work at uh, Harvard, but Howard Gardner, um, because in psychology and especially in education, there's a really a, basically a model that came from the military, how we all are broken down into emotional body, right, physical body, and mental body, right? And so uh, this lady... Uh, turned me on to this incredible science that she, she actually ran this place called the International Institute for Education for the Arts. So like for like four or five summers, I would go up to her retreat place and I'd be one of the counselors. And how she was working with kids, especially a kid that has ADHD or like, you know, or bigger than the other kids. So he's like a bully, right? And so she, the base principle is you work with all these kids and why they're having so many emotional and mental and, and social problems is because their whole being's out of balance. And so the simple formula she used is basically uh, music tunes their emotions, right? Uh, you know, visual art and poetry tunes their mind. And then, of course, theater and dance, you know, basically tunes their uh, physical. And when you work with them at a early childhood age, you basically you tune their being. So then basically uh, the f a whole spectrum of the being comes, so you look at it as a being becomes holographic. So you can't look at them with all these mental diseases and all this stuff because they're, they're a hologram now. You can't tell if they're using their physical or their mental or their emotional to learn or um, be engaged in what they're doing. So, yeah, that's a lot of my take on it, and I've continued to do that work like crazy in even all my arts, and, you know, it's merged with hip, my work in hip-hop and my work with uh, rock and roll music and all that. Uh, just really started looking at concerts, and that's what, at the highest level, that's why they grace so much money and, and they're a big part of people's, you know, realizing their life. And then back to Howard Gardner, if no one knows about Howard Gardner, he was a professor at Harvard, and he's uh, really well known for revolutionizing how you look at uh, education in the sense that a child is just not mental, emotional, physical. They could have a, a talent of music. They could be musical or they could be, you know, all the different areas. And so they actually have a musical intelligence or, or a painting intelligence. 
Yeah, definitely. I've definitely felt that way as well. Um, what is with coming back to even your love of creatures, I definitely want to come to that as well. Did you always have a love of creatures, or is that something that developed later in life? Because I'm thinking they're going like, whenever I hear that acronym, it is I paint creatures, and that's definitely part of what you've done even in that Hollywood space. But were you one that was always interested in things that were outside of the norm in the sense of being creatures? I know that personally I'm a lover of animals, so I have friends that would tell me that I would literally walk by, see a rabbit, and maybe even have an entire conversation with a rabbit as if I'm almost like, Dr. Doolittle, but I just have an affinity for animals, both wild and domesticated. So definitely, even though I don't currently have any pets, some of my neighbors, if I'm going by and I see the cat in the windowsill, I'll probably have a conversation with it. But I was just wondering yourself when this fascination with creatures came around. Well, it first started in the hospital story again, right, because I was cut off from, uh, you know, the normal kind of uh, 10, 10 to like 15 years old, you know, when you really are in school and you see that cool kid liking, you know, LL Cool J or ACDC or even Star Wars, right? And so you model them. And, uh, and since my father went in the hospital and then the year after I went in there, I basically got cut off from that whole influence. So I would sit there and draw. And I was always the weird kid of just be like, man, I'd start to draw a dog because I loved animals too because they were a savior because of how I grew up. You know, my family didn't express themselves about their heritage or anything, so I really connected with animals all the time, like pets and dogs. And so I always loved drawing dogs, but I was that kid who was like, whoa, what if I put elephant ears on it? And what if I gave them horns? You know, and, and so I started doing that. And then when that nurse discovered me, right, uh, I didn't know I wasn't that conscious back then, but I basically would go into these hospital rooms with these kids that were terminal, were dying. And right. so I couldn't draw them a monster. So I would always draw them like uh, I'd find a kid that like I learned she liked hip hop. So I I'd draw the creature with headphones on, you know, and a big satellite dish coming out of his head and, and it was all metaphoric to like giving her so she could hear a hip hop concert from far away. And, and and I would just make these fantastical creatures. And then the wild story is after my uh, surgery, right, I was not into Star Wars or any of that, but they were playing Star Wars in, in the movie theater in the hospital. And I just sure. demanded, I was still all drugged up, you know, from the surgery, but I demanded them that they roll my bed into the theater. And I don't know why, and then they rolled me in there. Of course, I fell asleep, like, you know, probably like 10 minutes in the movie. But I think that's really strange because then years later, I got the opportunity to go work at Lucasfilm. And I've never really been a fan of Star Wars, you know, because that incident with going in the hospital, I came out and all I was, all, all I had my mind on was hustling. You know, like, how do I make a living, you know, and I, I was more like, so when I went to Lucasfilm, I was more fan of like, how do you guys make millions of dollars and do this more than the story? But you also now created your own fantastical group as well, because I know that they mentioned in the room yesterday that you've got this uh, yeah. puppetry group that's going to be taken off out of Clubhouse, and hopefully it will be touring once we get out of the mystical world of COVID and everything. But tell us a little bit about that as well, because I was fascinated that you've got some of these people with different voices. Maybe I can lend a voice at some point as well, but I've got folks that have yeah, got their own you. characters. In. <laughs> I think we need you. <laughs> Mark, we need to. So that basically came out of um, 
you know, I continued to do creatures because, like I said, in high school, uh started to figure out, well, if I do this band flyer for my friend, he'd give me $25 or $30, you know. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I started cranking that out. And, the, you know, in, the, in that world, you know, the creatures are like, that's the perfect thing to do for a band flyer. And some type of creature, you know, some punk rock creature or so I always continue to do that. And then I'm just a constant, I've been, ever since the hospital days, I've been a constant sketcher. So I would draw and, and just always, like, always drawing critters. And, and that's where, like I said, I wasn't a fan of, like, Charles Schultz or, um, you know, the Peanuts or, or Aunt Simpsons or anything. I was never a fan of it, but I would always want to know who was the guy creating all this and getting paid. And so I started doing creatures like crazy. And then, of course, when I went to Lucasfilm, it really kicked in because that's one of the reasons he hired me. He looked at my sketchbook and my portfolio, and he's like, man, you just draw these creatures that we've never seen ever. And that's where he also defined uh, Lucasfilm. Uh, George is very uh, uh, astute on that. You know, there's monsters and there's creatures, and monsters are creatures that got hurt and didn't heal themselves. Right, and so they play a, a big role in storytelling and visual storytelling, right? And so uh, I went into that world, and I got to work on some really innovative projects because I didn't work with uh, – most people don't know there's Lucas Arts and then there's mm-hmm. Lucasfilm, and Lucasfilm is where I work, and Lucasfilm is George's uh, limited liability – corporation only has 50 employees so like i didn't work in the film industry production i actually got to work on george's r&d projects which are unlimited funding and no deadlines and so it was like you know kind of like dreaming and uh i the first two projects i got to work in the universe of star wars and indiana jones and one of the things was it was a lot of directed towards kids. And so my creatures fit in like crazy. So I got the venom there and storytelling. And so that's how I got deep into creatures um, and why I moved on to the, the, the project I'm working on now. It's called the Funky Eye Puppets and why I started to move in that because after I left Lucasfilm, you know, I had a serious girlfriend, moved in with her, looking like marriage and family, which is far from my artist life, but I was just going with the flow. And then we kind of hit rock bottom money-wise, so I was like, well, I'll go back to Lucasfilm and work for a while. And I actually went in there, and I was about to get some management positions or art directors, you know, so I could actually buy a house and everything and work there. And then my boss from the previous time, uh, saw me in the hallway, and before I took the job, she pulled me in her office, and she pretty much moved the stuff off her desk, looked me straight in the eye, and she says, this is off the record. I'm like, what is going on now? And she looked at me, and she says, you can't work here. And I'm like, what? I need to work here. I need a job, and I'm not going to work some stupid job after working here. And she's like, I just need to look into your soul and tell you something. And I looked at her, and she says, uh, you won't survive here, and I need to ask you the job you're going to take. Are you going to stay here? And I was like, you know, she knew me real well, and I couldn't poker face her. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to work this until I can get back out. And she said, I know exactly what you're going to do. And I said, what? And she says, uh, we have very few of you come through here. And uh, you came through, and you, especially because you worked side by side with George, you showed us that you're a storyteller. And then that tapped into my whole heritage, and I was like, whoa. And she's like, so you won't survive here because you do you do the high-end level. 
You know, you, a lot of people who get jobs here, they do one thing. They're really good at one thing, and they play a part of the team. But you, you, you was lucky you got that job with George because he had you writing, he had you drawing, he had you painting, he had you directing. And so basically that's where I got the storytelling. And where the Funky Eye Puppets came out is uh, I was touring the country. Like, that's when I was coming to the Carolinas a lot, and I was making my living as a spoken word poet. Right, because I won uh, the championships in my belt so I could get paid really well at universities. And, and so I was touring, but it put me in the hotel a lot, right? And then, of course, I always carry around my sketchbook. I never let that go, even though I was doing more poetry than painting and drawing. And I'd sketch. And then, of course, my cell phone, I'd start uh, going on YouTube. And then I was seeing that these, these creators that were storytellers were, you know, doing crowdsourcing, getting funded, like half a million dollars. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so basically uh, the calling happened when my mom was declining, so I had to kind of get off the road, and I was kind of sick of it too anyway because I uh, kind of bypassed a lot of having uh, booking agents and all that because I would, just, I would make more money and have more control of what I was doing. But then it was burning me out. So I went home to take care of my mother, and then, you know, I would watch YouTube like crazy. And at one point, I discovered uh, this artist, and he was like, go over to twitch.tv. And I'm like, what is that? And then I went over there that day, and and, uh, I was in there, and I was like, wait a minute. I thought this was a gaming streaming platform, and this guy's, like, painting, and he's painting, like, uh, creatures. And I'm like, whoa, that's what I do. And so I sat around after that, and then one big thing happened. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Twitch, but they have these things called raids, yeah. right? Where, the, where, where you know, where the stream before raids you, right? And uh, Bob Ross, he's not alive anymore, but he's one of the biggest art streamers on Twitch, and he raided this guy with like four thousand people, and I was like sitting there, what is going on? And all these people come in, and, and so basically what happened after that, the guy uh, saw me, and I made my name I Paint Creatures because I had that brand already going. That was my name on Twitch when I signed in, and the guy, the streamer after the crowd kind of dabbed down, he's like, hey man, I love your name. Let's see your creatures, dude. And I was like, well, I just started an Instagram. So I'm like, oh, go bop over there. And he came back from Instagram. And he's like, dude, where'd you come from? I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, dude, you're like badass. And I'm like, well, you know, I told my back, I work at Lucas. He's like, you work at Lucas? Oh, my God. And so then basically a whole bunch of them in that stream that night were like, dude, you need to stream. We want to see right. you do this stuff. And so basically I, I created a stream called I Paint Creatures, and then that blew up, and I actually got partnered at Twitch. It was really hard, I guess, for an artist to do that. And then um, and then at one point, you know, I had enough work, you know, professional artists. So I, at one point I was like, I'm making money off these subs and, and donations, all this, but and commissions. I started getting commissions. I was like, I need to make a product. Will you guys support a product? I need to do like a crowdsource and so they basically said make a book and I was like same thing kind of like Clubhouse I was like make a book I'm ready to make an, a full feature film man screw this book okay. and they're like yeah but make a book and they started throwing money at me right then so I was like okay I'm making a book and so I made this book and then basically one night uh, I basically published the book my whole self and everything and it's a 90 page book of like all my sketches paintings and drawings and basically I'm a visual storyteller so I just don't do random creatures I'm telling the whole story all the time just in my poetry integrates with that too and so one night when I was actually working on the book 
I needed a break, so I went to my sketchbook, and I, I just kind of, I don't know, I was like, I don't really want to draw creatures right now. Maybe I'll just do some portraits. And so I just, like, started, oh, maybe let's do portraits of uh, creature storytellers. And so I just started doing these rough sketches. I did Dr. Seuss. I did Moore Sendek. I, I drew uh, Kira Kirasara. I drew Joseph Campbell. I drew uh, Magiri, uh, uh, Shigiri Mizuki, who's the grandfather of manga. And then I drew uh, Shel Silverstein, and I drew Jim Henson. And then oh, well. uh, the next morning when I woke up, I looked at the page, and I'm like, wait a minute. Every single one of these guys is dead. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is weird And so I ended up showing it to my stream And then I wrote a poem to explain it And then that's basically uh, At one point in the stream I was showing it all And then I started looking down the chat And they all started saying, man, you're the next Dr. Seuss Dude, you're like the Japanese Dr. Seuss And then one guy ringed in And he goes, you're not You're like a lot of those guys But out of all those guys you're showing us You're Jim Henson and I was like, well, what? And then I realized the whole thing Jim Henson did, right? He picked puppets because, you know, to do animation, you got to bring in a team. You know what I mean? It's getting easier, and I have all kinds of methods to do animation, but it's, it's over your head because, like, try to do a feature film and compete with Disney and Pixar, you know, it's like, oh, man. And then uh, later that week, a lady bopped in my stream, and she, she said, I heard all about uh, – that dialogue with that guy all about Jim Henson and I'm a seamstress. And she goes, oh, well. wouldn't it be so cool to take some of your creatures and make puppets? And I was like, Whoa, really? And so she made two puppets. And then, so that was like three years ago, right? Three, almost four years ago. And so um, I attempted to do it on Twitch to get the voice actors and get everyone. But Twitch is a, just a whole different beast than clubhouse. And so then when I got on Clubhouse, I was like, whoa. I started reading people's bios, and, like, everyone and their mothers, a voice over actor or a motivational speaker. And I'm like, whoa, right. and poets. So I just, right. like, I just threw, I, I actually went into some other houses first and proposed it to them because they were already populated. I was like, man, let's make a show in here and let's do audio theater. And they're all, like, down, but they could never get their shit together. So basically what happened is I opened my own club, and one day I was trying to bring in those other clubs and go, here's the club where we could work out. And then it all fell apart. So at one point I was just, to keep things going, I just started throwing my characters in there and my story, Matsu. And then one day I just... uh open the club and I'm like, I don't know what the name is. I'm just going to open auditions for Matsu and the Funky Eye Puppets. And Mark, that's the end of the story. They flooded me. (laughs) I can believe it. Now I'm getting the stories of them, Mark, and they're telling these amazing spiritual stories of how they landed in there. Every single one of them. So it's really meant to be, you know, it's really working in faith for sure. 
Oh, no, and a lot of things work in fate. Like I said, I'm definitely, like we were talking about in that room yesterday, I'm a believer in fate and that we're in the middle of a new renaissance and the fact that a lot of us are connecting on, like, a level that I've never seen us connect before. I actually felt this way about even before COVID because I thought that there was a beginning of a renaissance as early as 10, 15 years ago, maybe around 9-11. But definitely I think that this is the kind of the epitome of it uh, and what's going to come out of this is going to be tremendous. And I definitely I think that one of your projects is – several of your projects. I don't think that it's just one project. I actually think it's several projects are going to be truly uh, breathtaking and all of that. Um, I was wondering if you were talking about the different styles, because you talk about like the classical cartoonists like Charles Schultz and, of course, The Simpsons. But I have always been a fan. It doesn't always show in Clubhouse, but I've always been a fan of satire. So I was wondering if any of your work, even in the puppetry field, has ever dealt with that? Because I've seen puppets, like I mentioned, in Clubhouse being used to talk about issues like I mentioned the group that's here in North Carolina, yeah, well, the Paper Hand Puppet Intervention, and they do a lot of environmental yeah. things. And I'm a fan of Bloom County, which was very um, political yeah. and Doonesbury. But I was just wondering, did any of your work touch on any of that? Uh, basically, the story of Matsu is all of it. Uh, okay. Basically, the Funky Eye Puppets is like if the Simpsons met Fat Albert and met Calvin and Hobbes and met the Simpsons and met Adventure Time and like Doonesbury and I'm a huge fan of Gary Larson and the Far Side. Right. And, and and basically, you know, anything creatures, you know. And and there's tons of satire because I specialize in yokai creatures which are, you know, I mentioned before are Japanese folklore creatures. And so the all the satire and humor comes because these are uh, yokai roughly in English means strange spirit. And so okay. there's all the satire comes out of the funky eye puppies because they don't need to eat and they don't need to sleep. <laughs> so anytime we throw in a, a real world scenario, it's, it's hilarious what, what starts to happen. I can believe that because when you were saying, um, and I, you know, that get even though we do sometimes get into that weeds of politics. When you were saying monsters and creatures, I was thinking about our and George Lucas's definition of there being a difference between monsters and creatures. I was thinking, oh, so that actually explains Mr. Trump. So he was actually the ones that are the negative ones, the truly negative yes. ones, whereas the other ones yes. are the, the the ones that were dealing with him in life and everything. Because when you were describing yes. George Lucas's definition, I was like, oh, so that explains a lot about. That craziness that was going on for years or so. Yeah, even the contrast in Star Wars, right? Because you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, I forget the the big worm creature, Jabba the Hutt. Right, Right. Jabba the Hutt. He's a monster. He's a creature, and then his whole background is all like like a lot of like a lot of monsters in our human world, right? He had a hurt childhood, right? And then there's Yoda. You know, Yoda's not a monster. He's a creature, right? He's a sorcerer. Right. Right. Yeah. So you could even use that same kind of kind of concept because I was also a fan not just of Star Wars but of Star Trek. So I guess you could use that same kind of concept if you think about like the datas of the world versus the Borg yeah. of the worlds because one would probably be yeah, a monster exactly. whereas data would be more of a creature. And then there's the whole uh, hero's journey, right? The transformation too of like the Borg, right? Like especially in right. uh, the. I forget what uh, Star Trek uh, uh, one where they they take that Borg actually she goes back to being a human again. Right, I think that was seven of nine or one of those characters that yeah, developed more of those yeah. set yeah. more of those yeah. human kind of qualities. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a huge you know, uh, Gene, huge Gene Roddenberry fan, so. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I'm definitely a fan of Gene Roddenberry. And it's really interesting. We're seeing more of this kind of science fiction view out there now. We're seeing more people that are getting into science fiction. Of course, we're seeing these millionaires going on these millionaire trips. Uh, I know we sometimes joke even on this show about the fact that it sounds good, but I do sometimes worry when we're seeing millionaires taking what looks like basically joy rides because we're going not even yeah. all the way into space, but just above the atmosphere, and then you're coming right back down. And I'm like, you know, I've, I've never had that pleasure of getting into the car because I've done I'm not a driver in society. I'm one of those mass transit people because of some things in my own life having to deal with dysgraphia and other uh, things. Dysgraphia is a form of kind of similar to dyslexia. So most of my life I've been without car, but I'm still going. So I never had that experience of a joyride, but I know what a joyride is. And my brother definitely has had some interesting travels with cars, sometimes with me in them. So yeah. I know what the concept <laughs> is, but I'm going like, wait a minute. Uh, that being said, uh, to go all the way up in space, just to come all the way back down didn't really make a lot of sense to me but hey i guess if you got that kind of money you could do what you feel like doing with it and to us <laughs> it would be like almost a dollar or a quarter but to them uh it would be our equivalent of a dollar or a quarter but to them it's nothing because it's a hundred million dollars or whatever it was that they put to go in that space trip but it's one that's been in that world because you worked at microsoft where you like did you have that kind of uh visceral reaction as well where you said they're going like why are they going up in space and why are they like spending all that money to go basically on a grand joy rush. Yeah. And then uh, what's really interesting with the Funky Eye Puppets, right, I was really resonating last night in the Field of Dreams where you were talking about the renaissance and the shift on the planet. Well, uh, just in this last month, the Funky Eye Puppets took an amazing turn, and I have uh, five disabled people on the cast. And wow. they're all very conscious about their like one has multiple sclerosis and then uh troy you met last night he was a he's a blind cello player well and, uh, we have a hiv positive and a quadriplegic now on it and uh uh two other uh beings who had uh one that was shot in the head with a gun and so she's fully uh, brain damage recovery and then uh, another person that also uh, had brain damage and basically died and came back. And so it's the whole metaphor of clubhouses save their life because now they wow. can be, you know, superpower, super, I call them superheroes because their voice and they did it all through their voice. So um, we're looking at, maybe uh, even uh, taking a sidebar to because I was producing a Funky Eye Puppet uh, feature film. But now I'm oh, well. thinking I'd rather put the troop together and even get on Zoom right now and Zoom into children's hospitals. Well, so you can actually get it in. Yeah, and all the creatures are also uh, – we're incorporating superpowers like for the quadriplegic, right? Uh, oh, actually, uh, the the one who got shot in the head, she's in a wheelchair, right? And her her creature is called Propeller, and and uh, is a little water goblin creature. And the water goblin basically can create swells of water anywhere and surf them. So wow, that's her, amazing. Her neck level walking, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's truly amazing. I can definitely see that. Yeah. I definitely want to um, hear more about even your views about minority participation in STEM and things of that nature. But before we get to that, I yeah. want to hear a um, IPC poem. You know I never can have you anywhere without hearing one of them long IPC poems. So can we have a demonstration of some of your poetic skills, and then we'll come back and maybe on the other side after a musical break talk a little bit about your views on um, science and um, where we are as minorities in terms of being um recruited into that field, but I'd love to hear one of those amazing IPC points, if I, if I can uh, ask sure. for one of those. Sure. I was walking these clubhouse streets where the audio sounded so sweet, and who would I meet? This cat named Mark Lee. And I was blessed to meet because hallelujah, I say I was happening. With the delicious words of prayer, I entered my faith because this is how I create. You see, the universe of truth is all right inside, and it tells us that we have all arrived to make the connections. We all live in this red river, and I shouted the moon, and I swallowed a song, and out of it came a lunar tune from within, and I swang on the crescent. And I'm now talking in this radio space, this podcast with my friend Mark Lee. But today, my city is lonely. It's filled with noise feeding back the crowds of worry and self-doubt, and I want to welcome back in my wonder. The awe of being a poet, being alive, my love of language that is a compass that composes skylines that can be spoken like desert rain, broken stands and rodeo courtships where I can gallop into the desert dust of this matrimony unknown, ocean sailing the mystery of my emotions, and be a creature again. Express this bountiful blood river music inside my congested rippled tuba release its notes of living because this life is music. I can hear the percussive fresh air from a polluted orchestra pit, and I want to unleash a symphony of words, phrases caged in wildness, formed into a key that unlocks and opens these doors inside my flesh I never knew was shut. Because we all have lighthouses in our chest. Arrangements of verbs and nouns that become a vehicle of land and sky and its buoyancy of salt water, spoken song written to express when I'm standing at the checkout counter. Sometimes us artists think we were here just to be something to encounter something, but we have to buy months of groceries. And I'm here on the planet to tell you a poem can arrange all the cashier lines. It can even do the laundry for you. It can let the dog out when you're dreaming in sonnets and couplets and iambic meter maids and haiku that shows me what I made, supernatural parking and ink that won't fade. It's a Super Bowl linebackers, these poets that won't abandon the grand expressions, courtship, depression, especially from the bull city. It takes away all this anxiety, disease, and undigested emotions. And it makes me want to compose my originality, the unique way my bruised eyes of window panes, the sorrow and suffering of this world, and the expression that is flayed of gourmet. And I season my words I've harvested from bouquets of this language, and I can taste it with sake October beer, fresh cilantro, and sizzling metaphors. I can hear the big band music and new horns of a newborn crying. I can touch the cool, crisp mornings, air in Antarctica to the rough cedar backs, barks, of Lebanon to the soft shadows of acacia trees in the African tundra, the softness of Tokyo's lost lotus petals, a song I can hear in the orchestra pit of my hippo's gut, a poem I can feel when a human has given up. It's a greeting that I haven't heard before. 
It's one of those birthday wishes and the freshness of a New Year's celebration. It's a poem I can feel like tequila rolling into my insides because I got to feel that poem. Relate to it like it's family and homesteads because they're just cranial wall bangers healing my confused words and heads. If it be silk or satin or cold steel, splintered, broken bones through the soft lips of the lover's rose petals, a poem that makes rain roll from my eyes, a poem that through all the seriousness with laughter that breaks barriers and dances and sings and lets out a cry, a poem full of California grisly courage, feet without shoes where I can feel the bareness of this earth, a poem that is smarter than the average bear, a poem that stands by us all, and it plays the music of the cracked Liberty Bell, a poem for all my people, so I can greet everyone from this podcast, and I can greet them universally, and I can say hello, konnichiwa, hola, namaste, ni hao, yatehe, enle. My name is human, and I I'm a poet. Wow. I love your work every time I hear it, whether it's in Clubhouse or even now right here on Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. I am a fan of IPC, and like I said, I know that I've heard that voice before, even at Haytai and other places, but I've been a fan ever since the time of actually seeing it in person, but even here in this radio space, I am definitely a true fan, and I know that definitely Desan, when he catches this on replay, and uh, definitely some of the other friends that are part of our circle, they'll be uh, representing and definitely remembering their great times with you as well, and definitely I know that you've picked up some new fans, including Dean and others that will be checking it out as well. But, uh, Appy, see, I said I was going to ask you about this whole concept of STEAM and science, and do you feel that we're getting enough representation of us in, and when I say us, I mean minorities, within the creative space? Because, like I said, I definitely feel that new renaissance, like I was talking about, in that field of dreams room. But I do sometimes worry about there not being enough gatekeepers. Like I said, I know you're in California. My friend Ronnie who's originally from Hillsborough and did that film. This Christmas is there in California. And to some degree, y'all are gatekeepers, and have worked with some amazing folks. But I don't know if there's enough of us. And I would argue the same thing for our lady peers as well. But I was just wondering, your thoughts about that, and if you feel there's enough of that kind of true representation going on, whether it's Asian or whether it's African-American or whether it's Hispanic or the various other minority cultures that are out there? Uh, I think there is good representation, but I think there's a lack of uh, perception and, and, uh, you know, the rooted knowledge and the history of that were in there. For instance, like, you know, I grew up with an older brother, so uh, my first, exposure to a lot of my music was like classic rock and roll right and i always remember you know i never saw a a japanese guy up front you know Mm -hmm. doing the vocals and singing and then uh always kind of like you know fueled a lot of my art and, and always representing my japanese culture and a lot of that and then uh I guess it went to the higher level because uh, uh, one day I was watching a, a Van Halen a documentary and they showed their mom. And their mom was a little Asian lady. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And it reminded back. And so it totally made sense, right, how, like, you know, Eddie Van Halen was like the ninja of the guitar, you know, like he right. played it like Mark like an Asian and then I started looking at them and Alex his his brother who's the drummer they all had those kind of slanted eyes and I was like whoa wait a minute (laughs) 
you know. And so I think my work also, you know, explained a little bit about my master's degree and all that, working with that fantastical lady, you know, professor. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of mine goes into the creature world. That's why I'm so into doing creatures because uh, uh, like how you referenced before, how there's a renaissance and a shift on the planet. I think that's uh, the next level of really getting in so we can all see ourselves as human and, and forget about all these race issues because I think it, it definitely on my near side, we're very unrepresented. And I think a lot of it is in perception too, you know, because I'm a dark skinned Asian uh, Japanese who's lost a lot of my uh, heritage. And so I identify with the Anu, which are the native, you know, the native Japanese, the Indians of Japan. And because like I meet, I live in a college town, so I'll meet a lot of uh, exchange students, right? And their skin is very, very pale, you know, and I'm I'm pretty much a dark-skinned brother, and so they usually think I'm Native American or Mexican. Well, so, uh, definitely. Yeah, that's fascinating. And a lot of times people's perception of us is also very interesting. Being a light-skinned African-American, I can tell you that I've been confused for all kinds of folks. I've been having spaces where people have said, particularly when the beard was less gray and maybe in a certain style, they might think that I was Cuban or Hispanic and even compare me to Fidel back in the day. And then there were other folks that had different things as well. And then I've had some strangers like European and other things also. So it's always fascinating. Yeah, and so the the creature work, and and this is a, a latest awareness. That's why I love when you speak on Clubhouse, um, especially when you take it to the next level of things like like your spirit does. And um, actually, I had a wild experience on Clubhouse because I was in uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the diversity in Hollywood room, but basically I'd never been in there. And Consuelo is a mod in there, and so I've always wanted okay. to go in there. And I, I wandered in there one night, and they were all arguing. <laughs> so, wow. Like a diversity. Yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of it was Afri- African-American folks because they were feeling offended, and so you guys are so powerful. They all grouped together, and they were, like, battling the Arab and the Indian folk, and I was sitting in there, and I was just like, man, I don't know if you want me to speak, you know, because, you know, talking about genocides and stuff, the latest one in our history is the Japanese-American uh, uh, internment camp. And and that's yeah, no pretty doubt. much buried. My kids don't even know what that is. Man, and I bring it up, right? And so basically my point, you know, I was in there and I was like getting sick to the stomach. It was the first room on Clubhouse. I had, I had to leave. It was just getting oh, too well. much. They were like like crazy and it was just like crazy. But then when I when I left, I, of course, I go to my poetry. I got to write this out. I got to figure it out. And then I started realizing that's where the Funky Eye Puppets, I'm actually delivering what they were all arguing about. Like the the cast, I have 40 people in my cast, and they're pretty much, I think I got every race on Clubhouse, <laughs> plus wow. the, the disabled people. So it's at a whole nother level. Kinds of issues like that, because I assign, they're all Japanese quote-unquote quote folklore creatures, right? But I'm, I, I don't have my language, and basically, you know, I was raised in California, so I'm Japanese-American. And so, like, there became things where, like, there's a, a African-American lady, and I just assigned these, these creatures random because I didn't even know what I was doing, so I just followed my intuition, and I assigned them to what's called a kappa water goblin. And it's, it's, and it's a, 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 a creature that's, like, part turtle, part duck, part, 
you know, all the water animals, fish, and all this, but it's also a human. That's why it's a goblin, right? And she was all like, what are these things? You know, and at one point she called me up and she's like, uh, so can you define if it's male or female? I just kind of want to know what's going on. I'm like, well, I think that's what's magical about these creatures. I want you guys to define. Is it a female or male? What kind of energy is it? And then she's like, well, what's the history of these goblins? And I told her a little bit, and I told her how I missed I reinterpret them. I don't use like Wikipedia and all that. I'm, I go back to being an ancient poet and storyteller and I use them as symbolic creatures to tell this, this humane story. And she was all like, well, that sounds great. So can I call it like an African kappa? And I was like, oh, well. yeah, you could do that. But you know, where I'm working, I'm, I'm, I want to go to the next step. Let's redefine all this. And she was like, well, yeah. I even like that better. You know, let's call it a kappa and, like, let's define, you know, it's not a race and it's not a gender. <laughs> you know, just like, and then she brought up, like, Tweety Bird, right? Everyone mm-hmm. loves Tweety Bird, but no one knows really if it's a, um, a dude or a chick, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. You said that. Everybody has their own yeah. spirit animals because even my dad, yeah, I'm talking exactly. about him being an artist, and I know that as far as I'm concerned, his spirit animal, and I don't even know what he developed his spirit animal, but you're talking about turtles, and he's always been, at least for the last several decades, a fan of turtles. I mean, he's been overseas and, you know, basically brought a turtle from overseas back to the United States where he lived with him, <laughs> and he had a big-time uh, land tortoise, which had the weirdest name of all because the land tortoise's name was Buttercup, and he kept Buttercup before it passed away back in a doghouse <laughs> in the backyard and everything. It was this lady uh, giant big turtle that he was very much bonded with. I think if I had to personally say the animals that Dad most strongly bonded with, it was probably Buttercup and Coffee, which was his lab retriever, That um, and unfortunately both of those have passed. But he still has multiple turtles in the house. I think there's a, a couple of turtles in his backyard uh, pool area, and there's definitely, a, I think, a few still in the house and everything, but every time I turn around, turtles seem to be his animals that is the one that he's attracted to, just like my de- brother seems to be attracted to dogs, and I think he's had a snake or two, but definitely attracted to dogs, and for me, cats seem to be the animals that pull me in along, along with rabbits sometimes, but it does fascinating how we all have, whether we have the native heritage or the Asian heritage, this uh, concept with animals and they're even being spirit animals. But that's just my thoughts. I'd love to hear if you agree with me that we all have some sort of uh, spirit animal guides. Well, that, you know, that, that definitely taps into, you know, definitely my, my whole, I'm right on the same page as you, you know, um, basically, uh, yokai are really fascinating, right? Because, um, it's just like in the Western world, you pretty much have J.R.R. Tolkien, right? That, because he created Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit right. and he created any, and like George Martin, the, you know, the author of, uh, Game of right. Thrones, there's the YouTube video where he talks about, uh, why J.R.R. Tolkien is so important in fantastical storytelling, right? Because he was a guy that created a world, not just the stories. He created a whole world and the history of the world and all the races. And uh, that's basically George Martin. He says that's why Game of Thrones is at the level it is because he's modeling J.R.R. Tolkien. So if you take uh, the yokai, yokai are basically the Japanese or the Eastern version of like J.R.R. Tolkien's world and how the Japanese create with the yokai is their deities. So they're pretty much spirit animals, right? And But, but they also move into what's called the Tutsugami, which we have in, in the Funky Eye Puppets crew, which are basically Toy Story, 
so uh, okay. inanimate objects and industrial things can become creatures, right? And they have just the simple mythology of like they taking from the human, right? Most of us live to a hundred years old. So a, mm-hmm. a tutsugami, so like a little teapot that's been there for a hundred years turns into a yokai. Because after wow. it, it turns 100 years old, it gets its spirit, right? So it's the whole metaphor of us, like, dying or whatever. Become, and then the whole Native American is spirit creatures. And then what's so wild about yokai is uh, they also make them, like, deities because a lot of their religion is not so rigid like Christianity, right? So it's Buddhism and Zen and Shinto, right? So it's all more about being present and, you know, not, not bringing too much ideology into the world of mystery. Just like like uh, uh, Joseph Campbell has a great story where he's at a conference and uh, the reporters were all reporting on all the different uh, entities or groups like the Shinto monks, right? And he, uh, one reporter, Western reporter, went up to one of the Shinto monks and said, it's so beautiful how you do things and, and how you do your rituals every day and, and keep the spirit alive. So what is your ideology? And Joseph Campbell always loved this monk's answer because the monk said, we don't have no ideology. We just dance. Well. Right? And so, yeah, so so the funky eye puppets and the yokai, which is incredible how you're talking about your family, uh, that's what they do. So basically a lot of the yokai are really fun. So like say the fl- the toilet got flushed in the night and no one knows who did it, right? And so the but. Japanese created yokai out of that. You know, oh, wow. but uh, the time we live in and, and where it's real interesting, in my work and, and a, a big influence with Lucas, right, is going back and being an original poet and storyteller, not using Wikipedia and this whole Internet thing. Right. But what's happening with a lot of the yokai, right, remember, all of them weren't created out of an encyclopedia or dictionary. They were created by poets and storytellers telling stories. And they needed symbolic metaphors, just like spirit animals and Native American stories, right? And basically, um, so a lot of the Wikipedia information is really dangerous to me as a 21st century storyteller because they're all monsters. They're all demons because they used a lot of these creatures and they invented them to talk about rape and incest and murder, right? Because that was the metaphors back then. And so uh, my work is very prevalent. Because I'm taking, like, the Kappa uh, yokai, right? If you go on Wikipedia, there's strange things. Like, they eat, like, you know, uh, sexual parts and blah, 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 and all this. And, and the major number one myth is they're the reason why children's, children dry, drown in rivers. Because there's right. a Kappa yokai down there, and they go down there, and the Kappa, like, drowns them or whatever. But... Uh, so they're real interesting because they have this dish on their head, right, that, that's oh, well. supposedly filled with water. And so it's either a dish or it's a, a bowl or something. But as a poet, right, instead of, like, reading Wikipedia, I just look at all the symbols, like, whoa, okay, this creature is part turtle. So what's the, you know, energy and the meaning behind the turtle? And what does it bring our lives, like spirit animals, right? Well, what's the, and it's a, it's a fish, what does it do? And then it's part human and the human aspect of a goblin to me, like goblins, you know, if you look it up on a dictionary, it just says some dirty, evil, demonic creature, right? But so in my world, and I kind of took this from Lucas to a goblin is just a human being that's gone back to their more animal nature. And so they started uh-huh. incorporating. So uh, what you made me think of is the, the yokai are so amazing, right? Because all the animals that are in Japan, they combine them. 
like 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 oh. the kapha, right? But tons of them that have dogs, right? And so to hmm. me as a poet, I don't look at the dog. I look at loyalty and fierceness, right? And that's gotcha. the energy I'm putting into my character. And so I invent them all the time. So then the Funky Eye Puppets, there are what I call classic yokai. And so they are the kapha but I'm also redefining them for the age. And the, basically in the Funky Eye Puppets, there's a crew called the Kakapa DJs. And I modeled those after the Ninja Mutant Turtles. You know, oh, well, but yeah. in the story of Matsu, you know, it's a totally evolved tale. And so uh, it's basically a time where there's no war. So, like, if you see a lot of popular cartoon and anime, right, you always see the power creatures and they're always holding a weapon. Mm-hmm. Right, some type of destructive thing, and and in the story of Matsu and the Funky Eye Puppets, they're all holding all this amazing technology, but it's like it has piano keys on it, or it has a paintbrush <laughs> out of it, or you know, they're all and I call them uh, instruments of mass creation. I love that. So instruments of mass destruction, yeah. instruments of yeah. mass creation. And it's interesting you were yeah. talking about that because you were as you were saying that I was thinking about all these. And I know that one of the people in the clubhouse room was talking about this yesterday, but these dystopian creatures that are, are dystopian stories that are looking at a new world that's positive in some ways, but it's fantastical because I am a fan of yeah. Black Panther and that whole Wakanda image. But you yeah. can say the same thing out of the feminist movement with like the whole Wonder Woman Xena uh, yeah. narrative yeah. as well. And then even I know that the young lady was talking about this. She didn't see enough of that in the LGBT community, even though I think that I have seen a few as I was judging films, but they're not, they haven't had maybe the success of say a Wakanda or a Xena or a Wonder Woman. But it's just interesting how we're using um, these fantastical stories in order to paint the world that we want out there. Cause that's definitely what Wakanda was. And it's definitely in my mind what um, Wonder Woman and Xena were about, even though they were set in ancient times. Yeah, and I'm really influenced by like your your Trekkie. I'm really influenced by Gene Roddenberry, and then of course his roots, which is Isaac Asimov, right? The the real science fiction writers, and the whole concept of you know what you were talking about is representing the new world and Matsu, which is the main story, right? Which also has an acronym. It stands for Making Art Together, Supporting Unity, and so that's kind well. of the basis of story and another thing i've done which i haven't met anyone on the planet yet who's doing it is the whole history of matsu lord of the rings star wars harry potter tales of narnia ninja mutant turtles you know uh far side it's all the imaginative stories that have come before it is the history of my matsu world so it's basically like a history. It's like going through a history narrative while you're going through the story narrative yeah. as well. I know that one of the shows that a friend of mine does, and it's on the live stream platform, is one called The Gamer's Den. But Jatobi comes out of that video game world. Cause, but as you were describing it, yeah. I was seeing these puppets that they could also be entire video games, if not entire animations yeah. and movies. Because as yeah. you were describing them, I was like, these things seem almost destined to be not just one form of creativity, but multiple forms of creativity. I know yeah. that there are people in that video game space, in Clubhouse, in Discord, in a number of these other kinds of rooms. But as you were describing, I was like going, like going this could be like a whole other Lucas empire. Yeah. Well, the first project I worked on, George Lucas, right, uh, he had a major question in his head. And the re- that's one of the reasons he hired me. He was like, how come in all the schools, just in the United States, 
there's mm-hmm. not one of him graduating high school each year. And not necessarily a filmmaker, just someone who's going to shift the whole planet with, right. with the, their purpose, you know. And so the first project I worked on, he introduced me to two concepts. One was multi-platform storytelling because he was watching the Internet. And he was like, wait a minute. The future of filmmaking, we ain't going to have to use McDonald's or Taco Bell to advertise right. it. We can use YouTube and we can just tell all kinds of stories because the Star Wars universe is, you know, endless. And so he was all like, whoa, what if we did that? And then he was also interested in how could we incorporate that so we can find that stoner kid or that rebel kid that was like me and just can't pay attention to science and geography because it has no relevance to their street life and how they're already adult because of their home circumstances. And he wanted to bring in, how do we bring in Star Wars to teach uh, physics? Then he started getting flack from the, the society, right? Because they were all like, because he was, he had running the division called Lucas Learning at that point. And that's where he majorly brought me in to like, how do we start making products that could tie Star Wars because all the kids love Star Wars, but then tie in how they can make a living. You know, maybe they have a talent in geography or science or physics or something. And he was taking a lot of slack from the society because they're like, you're just trying to sell Star Wars. And so the last project before I left there, uh, we we formed the, uh, what what is known as GLEF, which is the George Lucas Educational Foundation. Oh, well. I didn't know George had an uh, educational foundation, and that's fascinating because, yeah, and that's a great question he was asking because it should be at least one uh, society shifter or, uh, if you want to use science fiction terms, shape shifter that comes out of every uh, school system of the country or yeah. definitely every state, if not every school system. So it seems to me with every school has, you know, thousands of students, there ought to be at least one that has got those kind of yeah. mind-changing views. And it seems to me that he wasn't even finding that. It was like he was finding like maybe one out of every 100,000 schools or out of every million schools. And that is really yeah. way underrepresented from what we need. Cause, and the other thing that I find fascinating, I love your thoughts because you grew up in that kind of environment, is that some of the skills that we need, we already—they're already being developed. Because even though I grew up in Durham, but I um, also grew up in a rural town. I have friends that grew up in urban environments, including some that would have grown up in what people would have considered gang drug culture. And I can tell you that some of the business skills and some of the creative skills that they needed were already being developed and being cultivated by those cultures, but they weren't being cultivated into the mainstream society. And that's why they get caught into the prison system and that whole prison industrial complex. But that's my whole thing is how many uh, of what we were in in that room of uh, yesterday, the field of dreams. I wonder how many true field of dreams are actually sitting in our prison systems and aren't getting the encouragement. Don't get me wrong. I know that Desan, probably you there in California, have been into the prison <laughs> systems, but but are they yeah. getting enough support, not the, not the uh, talent, but are they getting enough support from the administration and the people as they even try to get out into society? And that's where my concern is. is I know there are programs where people like you and the son and church and others go into prisons, but it's one thing to reach out there and talk to them. It's another thing for them to have encouragement to use those business skills and those creative skills that they might have developed in the gangs or they might have developed even enhanced furtherly in the prison, and then we bring them out and throw them back into the uh, Back to the wolves, for lack of a better analogy. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> this is 
kind of shocking to people, but uh, it always comes up. But uh, if I look back, my first spoken word piece was between mm-hmm. two Glocks. Between two Between guns. two what? Oh, two guns. guns the Glocks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, um, basically uh, uh, two uh, Asian street gangs, and I was kind of an elder at that point because I was a supplier. And uh, basically they were about to have a whole shoot shoot down, and I stepped right in between, and I spoke for like 35 minutes straight. And then they put down the guns. So to this day, I don't even know really what I said. But (laughs) I said something, and so when I look back, that was probably my first performance. Well, that was a serious performance. So if I'm hearing you correctly, yeah. at some young age, let's say your 20s or whatever, you were in the middle of yeah. a gang confrontation, and yeah, there, yeah. and you spoke some poetry that basically, even though you might have had a role as, in that as well, being a supplier or whatever, yeah. but you spoke some poetry yeah. that got both of them to lay down their weapons. Yeah. Wow, that is truly deep that you were able to pull that off. Because I'm sure some people were going like, I can't even believe that he's attempting to try to talk these people down. Because I know that one of the scariest yeah, moments I ever. Yeah, exactly. I think back to that so, moment, and I don't even know. I think it was the spirit. I I don't even know why I was even in there, <laughs> but I just remember just you know when I started getting into the poetry slam, I just kept going back there, just going whoa. No, it's interesting that you say that. Kind of stupid. Yeah, it's inter- <laughs> no, but it's interesting that you say that because I remember while I was not having that kind of environment, I've always been a networker, a connector. That's always been kind of one of my roles in life and everything and still a role that I enjoy along with being a uh, definitely using my media and event planning and other spaces to help enhance society in any ways that I can. But I, my brother actually works with at-risk youth. He still does work with that to this day with his company that he's got. And I remember we were sharing an apartment. It was actually an apartment that my uh, – not an apartment, it was a house, but a house that my mom helped us buy because, you know, she was – she knew that dad was tired of us living with him and she didn't want us being too far away and she didn't feel we were ready to be out into the world yet. So she basically bought a house and it was actually not that far from dad, literally around the corner. And it was known as the party house. And Malik was young and he was having parties and I was not minding the parties, even though I was a little bit older, seven years older than he is and everything. But I was enjoying some of the party atmosphere. And But I remember one time there was somebody that stepped bad to him and his crew and everything. All I remember from that me- memory is kind of like what your memory is of the poetry. Because all I remember is I didn't even know that this crew had that many weapons, and all of a sudden weapons started popping out of nowhere. And I'm going as the naive older person, like, where the heck did this stuff come from? Because <laughs> yeah. he wasn't even aware that people were, uh, you know, in that life or packing or even doing safety things. Because like I said, all I knew is somebody had come into the party, tried to disrupt it, and, you know, they pull out their thing and uh, about, 20 other things come out, and I'm going like, I'm just sitting there in a fantastical moment going like, where the heck have y'all been hiding this at? Yeah. So it's just fascinating how sometimes these things just pop up out of nowhere and shock you, even if you're not, whether you're involved in it like you were or whether you're a spectator as I was. It's just sometimes amazing how those things will shock you. But like I said, it's probably part of my brother's destiny because he's been very much in that space of trying to make sure that kids get out of that space now. So he does a lot of work working with the kids to make sure that they're not following into that lifestyle or things of that nature. But 
I'm always fascinated by the business skills that so many have in that space because I've definitely got some friends that are oh, working yeah. in that space. And, and they they are – I mean, we talk about the uh, the Elon Musk and the um, Jeff Bezos of the world, but in terms of true economic business skills, I think that some of those have just as much as some of our corporate leaders. They may not have as much uh, product and they may not have as much um, – distribution sites that they're able to make that kind of just based on kind of money, particularly if they're coming out of our neighborhoods. But the business skills that they have, I just wish that they would turn them to something what society considers more mainstream. Well, that's what's uh, real interesting. We're, we're so much in alignment, me and you, because um, that's the whole reason I'm doing the Funky Eye Puppets in Matsu is it is of course to, you know, live out my, my film, uh, destiny and things like that, but uh, it all is basically uh, what Matsu is because uh, the the concept George gave me was multi-platform storytelling and interactive storytelling, and so I've taken that to a whole nother level. Like uh, the story of Matsu is designed to continue after I'm gone and after all this crew right now. It's conti- it, it, it has a whole component, especially when the money starts to roll in, to give it back to. And I have a vision of these uh, things that I call life houses. And what oh, a wow. life house is, it's a three-story building. Um, and, and on the first floor is a performance space and a workshop area, so a nice little mm-hmm. theater. And then the second floor is a high-tech, uh, creative, uh, internet, traditional and digital art studio and a broad, uh, di- you know, internet broadcast uh, studio. And then mm-hmm. the third floor is, is a library that's curated by the uh, the artists who teach in the Lifehouse and then uh, the students who come through. And then the whole model is to build two Lifehouse uh, prototypes, and I'm also looking right now because of the pandemic to maybe build them online or start the whole metaphor. And I think it's already kind of happening with the Funky Eye Puppets because a lot of the Funky Eye Puppets are parents and, and some of them are teachers, some of them work with youth, right? And so the model is to basically get uh, – and I learned this from the Poetry Slam world because I also, like Desan, I became a coach of all the youth poets for many years, um, and so basically the uh, model is to get 10 students, right, uh, from 13 years old to 18 years old and and basically making a kind of after-school program where they come to the center and basically they get schooled in all the arts, not specifically to become a painter or a poet or a filmmaker, but to basically be an entrepreneur and learn how their purpose and their mission and whatever they've come to be alive is their mission. And so basically train them all. Of course, the number one skill is the art of the public speaking or spoken word or poetry, whatever you want to call it. And then um, tap into all their other interests and their backgrounds from their family and their heritage. And then uh, go on uh, summer tours and go to all the cities and uh, first do a performance for all the kids and the youth and the social workers. Right. And then uh, the, have a, a fully loaded merch table where they've all produced their own books, their own um, movies, their own music, all that. And then uh, the f- workshops will follow those in, in all about showing them how they all use the internet. Like, like we came together, 
you know, and so that's the whole goal. And the whole goal is so it goes on way after I'm gone. And 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 part of it is marrying, you know, that you can go make money with this. That's why uh, the puppets and the Matsu movie is so important because I want to show uh, the kids and youth behind us that I, I'm not playing it. You know, you can become a millionaire at this, but you're not becoming a millionaire to ruin your life with money. You're doing it so you can do your art at the highest level possible and, and in an entrepreneur state. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because both uh, it actually resonates on a couple of levels. One, I've actually talked about that even here in North Carolina because I know that there was a gentleman that had the film lot. He had the old dealer rented studio, and right now it's sitting there empty, and that's the uh, studio that Fazer Blackwell had created over there in Yanceyville, North Carolina, but that thing is sitting empty. I think maybe there's some churches and others that are using it, but it had like an old plantation house, a lakefront, and last time I heard her, I think Dolly Parton and some of her crew were trying, or maybe it was Tweetsy, were trying to get a hold of it and turn it into something, but it was still sitting there empty at everything, and it's, you know, just not that far from the North Carolina area because it's in Caswell, I mean, he is, he is in North Carolina, but in Caswell County, about maybe two or three counties from Durham County. But I'm sitting there going, like, this is just some tremendous property that is not being used. And I know that Ronnie, who's the filmmaker that I've referenced a couple of times, who lives there in California and did this Christmas, he's been talking about wanting to come back here to North Carolina, but also doing some stuff in California that would be what you're talking about. It's kind of that educational aspect because he's been in that film game for 20, 25 years. It created uh, not just this Christmas, but Puff Puff Pass and a couple of other films that he's done with McCoy. Pfeiffer and a number of other folks so he's definitely been trying to figure out that next generation kind of conversation because he's uh, you know getting up in age as well not as old as I am in the late 50s but I won't say he's early 50s or somewhere around there and definitely has adult kids so he definitely would um, at least want adult kids so he definitely wants to leave them a legacy whether that's them pursuing his career or just the legacy of passing on it to another generation. It doesn't have to be his own kid. But I can definitely agree with that. So as you were saying that, I was going like, wow, I've heard this from a lot of folks. I'm hearing it from you now, having heard it from Desan, having heard it from Ronnie. That's what I mean when I said that that era of renaissance is truly out there. So we're cheering a lot of that um, elder leadership that is definitely trying to take it to the next level and also learning from the elders that have gone ahead of us because I was friends with uh, and you probably heard the name if you know the son of Pierce Freelon but his dad Phil Freelon yeah, was the leading yeah, black yeah. architect over there at uh, the Negro um, uh, the Black History Museum up there in D.C. Phil was one of the main creators of that along with the ballpark here but I was also friends with Baba Chuck Davis before he passed it. you know he was all about mm. leaving legacies as well so even reflecting on those that have passed ahead, but also trying to make sure that we are leaving something positive for those after we complete the journey of our lives. Even though, like I said, in the clubhouse, and I've said it to other people, I'm personally going for 200, but nobody else has done it. So I just figured I'd set an impossible goal. So I'm personally <laughs> going for 200. <laughs> yeah. Well, you made me think about because I spent a lot of time in Winston-Salem, right? And when I first went there, I just wasn't awake to, like, what was really going on. But then I um, spent some summer uh, stints in there because I have a good friend. I don't know if you know Bob Moyer. Yeah, I've heard the name. I don't know him that well, but I think my friend Calvin Anderson knows him very well. 
yeah, he runs the uh, Winston-Salem Slam, and he's really into haiku. But anyway, I got to stay with him, right? And then I started to wake up to Winston-Salem. I was like, wait a minute, it's named Winston-Salem. Wait a minute, Tobacco Road. Whoa, 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 plantations. I started going, whoa. And so I went out to that guy. Uh, uh, I think you know I'm talking about that the main uh, tobacco tycoon guy's house that's out there. I think yeah, R.J. Reynolds, and I went and I just I I spent the whole day crying because <laughs> I oh, read yeah. all about his kids and how they became heroin addicts and and then I I toured that building you know where he has a swimming pool and the racetrack and and I just literally like cried like the whole day just going man see money doesn't solve problems man <laughs> no money doesn't yeah. solve problems and actually my mom yeah. uh, who is still living with she actually ran the Golden Leaf Foundation, which is the tobacco settlement money. So she was their first president. I think they're only either their second wow. or their third president. So she actually ran that as their first president for quite a few years, at least a decade, if not a little bit more than a decade. But she was giving money to mm-hmm. North Carolina Central, to um, different people that were doing projects that were getting them out of the tobacco industry because that's kind of what the whole purpose of the Golden Leaf Foundation was, was to try to get people out of that industry but to do more mm-hmm. um Wow. Uh, conscious kind of jobs and everything, but she ran that for a number of years and was uh, definitely left her legacy along with the radio station as part of her legacy, even though she's still around and enjoying retirement. But in terms of her work legacy, that is definitely part of her legacy. So I can definitely relate to that. And you're talking about the um, tobacco people, even here in Durham, yeah. where I'm at, the Duke family has some very rich history. Yeah. If you think about wow. the Duke family, <laughs> there were Dukes that were in the tobacco field, but they were also uh, kind of doing that, which is, it goes on, it even goes on over there in the West Coast, that um, one member of the family might be making all the money and the other member of the family might be a little bit more of a rebel. And they so some of the members of the Duke clan might have been spending a little bit more time than was expected in what some people would consider the hood, because I know that there was at least one of those Dukes that was considered a party animal. So he definitely spent some time in the African-American community as part of his uh, partying and maybe even, you know, spreading some joy to some of the sisters around as well. So it would be interesting to find that some of our leadership might have some mixed bloodline based on what some of the Duke Tobacco yeah. Harris's and <laughs> and Hares were doing. So that's part of the Duke history as well. I got it all yeah, I'm woke, a, woke, I got awoke into the Hanes too. I was like, whoa, what, yeah. what, what's up with this fruit of the loom? I've always wore the fruit of the loom. And then I was like, one day just, whoa, cotton. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> You know, and for yeah, the yeah, California kids, that. that's like a big, that's a big awakening for a California kid, you know. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> you probably going like, wait a minute, what, what did I get into? Yeah, I was like, did, whoa, I'm in the heartland of this stuff. You know? <laughs> did the son ever turn you on to the history of Haiti? Because even though I know you came and performed at Haiti, but there were actually, because we just did a Juneteenth celebration a couple of months ago, and one of the people came mm. and broke down some of that history, but there are Arishna symbols that are above the uh, steeple and everything. And there's some interesting theories as to why they are there, but there are definitely some serious Arishna symbols because there were some people tied to hate to the country of Haiti that were very much involved in helping put those symbols up. And of course, if you go into the 
church where you performed at or the uh, performance hall as we now know it as, if you look on one side, you'll see a picture of Jesus. If you look on the other side, you'll see a picture of one of those dukes. But that's one of the more straight-laced dukes, but uh-huh. it's definitely one of the mural glasses. But apparently he gave some money. So when he gave the money, they were putting up those murals in the early part of Haiti's history in the mm-hmm. 19th century. And I'm sure he was probably like, yeah, I'll give you all a couple of uh, – you know, what would have been millions to us now, but at that time it was probably tens of thousands, and they were, and he was probably like, yeah, all I need in return is for you to put my face on that wall so that people can see it for centuries. And it's been up there on that wall for at least a century. Yeah, I basically uh, got never really been uh, straight schooled by Dasan, but, like, I pretty much kind of mentored him in haiku. And so, like, okay. when he started writing the black, black uh, themed haiku that's when he was just blowing me away and then you know that also brings back you know uh you know figures like etheridge knight yeah yep definitely i'm familiar with etheridge knight and all of those great leaders and everything who is some of the haiku yeah. people that really influenced you and got you into haiku i know it's a japanese form so i'm thinking it was probably something that you learned from your heritage but are there like some while well, you are the um, you know, all-time champion. How did you personally get involved? Were there some pioneers before? We're talking about pioneers. Were there some pioneers before that well, drew you into the poetry world and the haiku world, well, to be the, specific? The first, the first thing was what I call the schoolyard format, which is what most people practice, right? Which is the five-syllable, seven-syllable, five-syllable, three-line poem about nature that we learned from our fifth-grade teacher, right? And so that was the first place. Right. But then actually where it really came back is when I entered one of my first national poetry slams. Right, I didn't come as a team. I just kind of came in as an individual and brought some friends with me because I kind of the same story about Twitch. I ran into a bunch of poets when I was uh, getting into really doing professional spoken word. Right. And uh, this guy's like, go to the national slam. I'm like, what the hell is that? And so we went there and, uh, um, we were in the hotel room and one of my uh, friends who I brought with me, he's like looking at the pamphlet and he's like, dude, they have a side haiku thing, man. And he's like, man. And I was like, well, I, I used to do that. And then uh, started thinking about, we had this kind of deep talk. He was like, you just don't do it. It's in your blood, man. And then I started going, well, you're kind of right. Cause I remember my grandmother always having the scrolls on the wall with the kanji you know, symbolic Japanese language, and there's only a few symbols on there. And then my grandmother was a Shigen poet, which is the uh, poet of the Royal Crit of Japan. So I was like, yeah, okay. So we went in and participated in that, and that's when I won my first title. And uh, oh, wow. what happened in, in that bat, uh, match is there was there's uh, the uh, prelims, semis, and the finals, right? And I went through this... Uh, uh, Prelims, and I just was having fun. I was just gonna, I was just gonna fuck them up, basically, like take them to a whole nother level. And I just did that. And then basically, uh, what happened is, uh, um, then they were like, "All right, you're moving on to the next round." I'm like, "Next round?" <laughs> I'm like, "I don't have any more. I wrote these this morning, you know, just kind of off the schoolyard format." And so basically, then I just sat there in the audience and I started writing them down. And then when we got out on the mat, match and we were competing, I was like, at one point, I just felt my blood kind of boiling. I'm like, just set down my notebook, and I'm like, let's go. And I just start making them up. 
Like well, I started counting the syllables on my finger. You know, and I, I entertained the whole room because I worked in the the Japanese tradition of like Zen. You know, I was just talking. All the haikus were about the room and the host and the guests and. You know, and I wasn't really dissing them, but I was like doing it, and then, you know, and then they, then they're like, "All right, you made the semis," and I'm like, "I thought I won." They're like, "No, there's the final round. You and another poet. Best nine out of seventeen. I'm like, "Oh no," and so I did the same thing there. I just made them up, and and I, it became like, you know, it went back to hip hop days. It was it was a battle. Like I was just, you know. And what was winning was my presence, not necessarily that they were written, good written haiku, but I was, like, talking about the presence. And so it was hilarious. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, you say that because uh, one of the things that I know when I think of haiku, I think, and even some of the combat poetry uh, that goes on sometimes, is um, it's very much can be intense battle poetry and everything, but and it can definitely be some comparisons to the dozens, which you know is historically an African American thing where you're yeah. playing around and insulting each other back and forth. But one of the things that I love whenever you do your poems, like you did earlier, and I want you to do one more at the end and everything, is that you always um, compliment people and you compliment who's ever in the room. Like if we're in a clubhouse room, you interject people, but it's in a very complimentary fashion. So I think that's part of your nature and your gift is that you're able to have these very rich conversations that go on and that are very powerful, but you're uplifting the people as you're talking about them. Because I know every time that I hear you, whether it's me, whether it's uh, Danny or whether it's some of the other people, you're always uh, putting in their praise and all of that. So it's always fascinating when that takes place and everything. And I'm wondering if this is Dean popping in, so I'm going to see who we've got else there, because I just see we've got another caller that popped in, so I'm going to see if Dean's joining us or what's going on in that sense. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about um, that not insulting people, but definitely in praising them when you do your poetry. And uh, while I'm glad you're doing that, I'm going to check. Who is this at? 330-472-6195? Uh, my name is Dan Guz. I'm an entrepreneur that uh, had gotten in touch with you guys through uh, a, a channel, and then you guys had invited me to call on the show. Okay, I appreciate it. Definitely, I appreciate you calling in and everything, and we're actually toward the end and everything, but I would love to hear, if you can, briefly, and I would have you definitely call in next week and everything because it's a two-hour show, and it's actually goes to the tail end, but they're having a great conversation with IPC, iPaint Creatures, who is a haiku champion, and it's worked with George Lucas. So really quickly, Dan, if you can tell us about yourself, and I will definitely invite you back, but then I also want to hear from IPC as he has been having this great conversation about the world of entertainment and the world of poetry, and I'm going to have him do one at the end, and I will definitely have you call back next, well, not next week, because next week is Labor Day, and i got to double-check with Dean to make sure we're doing the show, but if not next week, the week <laughs> after, but I will follow up with you and figure out whether it's next Monday or the week after, but if you can just at least give an early introduction as to who you are and what you've got going on, and you know that I will be bringing you back. That's perfect. Yeah, my name is Dan Guz. Uh, I founded a company called Lloyd. Uh, last year, we focused on helping young professionals navigate their career, giving them a sense of structure and accountability through what often is kind of a tough and turbulent time for folks a few years after college, trying to figure out, you know, where they want to go in their career and, and all the decisions that come along with that. So, um, yeah, we're a technology company that is trying to make a bit of a difference in the world and uh, excited to you know, tell folks more about what we're doing. 
I appreciate that, and that actually falls into what we were talking about because definitely uh, IPC has been talking about his company and the publisher and the things that he's doing, and a lot of it is about reform and trying to make sure that kids have a, a future ahead of them as well. So, hey, I didn't even know that uh, George was going to call him, so I probably did invite him, but I didn't know he was going to call on this particular day, and it sounds like he followed right into our Renaissance conversation, IPC, <laughs> in the sense of he's doing the same thing that we've been talking about this whole time. <laughs> Yeah, he's Dan the mayor. Yeah, he's Dan the mayor. Glad, glad I, glad I could fit right in. Um, yeah, no. Tell me more. Tell me more about the poetry. Yeah, please tell him about the the uh, in a abbreviated version what's going on with the uh, puppets and the poetry and how this is all being put together and this great fantastical puppetry group that you're going to have performing hopefully out in the real world after we can get past this lovely stuff that's going on called COVID. So, yeah, um, so I'm based, I'm basically an award winning uh, spoken word poet storyteller. My Heritage. I'm full-blooded Japanese, and on one side of the family was uh, the ancient storytellers and poets of Japan called the Shigin poets, and the other side of my family, my father's side, was royal samurai. And uh, I, I basically have been doing a multidisciplinary artist my whole life, and I got the grand opportunity to uh, work at high-tech firms. I worked with George Lucas uh, personally on. Uh, his own R&D projects, and then I got to work with uh, the futuristic divisions at Apple and Microsoft. And so I've always been a storyteller, and I've uh, done a lot of street art, and always uh, drawn uh, fan, uh, from my imagination. And so uh, I have a project right now which accumulates it all together because uh, I realized at one point my name, I think creatures I'm carrying on the tradition of like Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein and Morris Sendek and Sigiri Mizuki and uh, um, the great Jim Henson. And so I have a project right now where I'm basically have brought uh, together 40 voice actors on the new uh, social media platform clubhouse. And uh, I'm putting together basically the next uh, Muppet, but uh, with the IP, I think creatures twist and uh, they're updated, they're hip, they're into hip hop, they're into technology, and they're also very much into entrepreneuring. So that that's where it enters this space. And then the whole project I'm doing is to do a project like you're doing, Dan, to basically empower the entrepreneurs of the future. Sounds great, and unfortunately, that's what happens is just like in Clubhouse, even in the podcasting world. Call this call in, call this drop off, call this call in, call this drop off. So I've just <laughs> copied out his number, and I will call him back and everything. But we've got about eight minutes to go, and at the end, we always have to tell people where they can hear the show again, as well as some of the other shows that we have. Because one of the things that I've done, well, actually, Dean did it, and I just kind of helped him along with it, is that um, – I guess technically we both did it, but he came up with the idea of, you know, we've got this podcasting platform on Blog Talk, but we only do our show one day, and he had some other friends that were doing shows, and we were like, why don't we offer it so that other people are doing it, and we're basically creating like a mini network. So I've reached out to uh, my friends that do She's On Call, which is a group of New York uh, medical people, medical women, and their show has allowed to be re-aired on our platform, uh, or we definitely re-aired on the platform. I have another friend that is in the African-American space, and she does a show about going through menopause as an African-American woman. So her show re-airs here, and then there's a 
family, a young lady and her two young kids that talk about education from their perspective and their show re-airs. And then Russ Hedge, who is a motivational speaker, and I heard you talk about motivational speakers earlier, he re-airs. And Mona Shakes, who is of Persian descent and from California, her show re-airs on this platform. So there's probably about, I want to say, and that's only five of them, but they're probably close to 12 to 14 shows that Dean goes back in and re-airs. So any of your podcasts that you would like to join or have re-aired on this platform, I'm offering it as an opportunity for it as well. And, of course, I'm looking forward to our continuing our conversation in September on the live stream where we actually get to see each other face-to-face and not voice-to-voice as we do on Clubhouse and as we're now doing on this podcast. But that being said, and with about six minutes to go, and I still also have to tell them where it ends. And, by the way, Dean is much better at this part of it than I am. I usually lead the interviews, as you can tell, from both Clubhouse and from this interview space. That's usually my role is to lead the interviews, but then he comes in, does the sponsorship. He will usually come in and maybe interject some comments and everything, but he's a master at the sponsorship part that I am not a master at, but I'm trying to fill in his shoes today. And I want to say that we said we were not doing next week because of Labor Day. We'll be back in the second Monday of September, which is today's the 30th. That would be the 13th. So I'm pretty sure we'll be back on the 13th, but I'm going to call him on later on this evening to verify that. But that being said, IPC, can I get a one more of your amazing poems to get us on out of here? And if you support Dean, because I know Dean's going to do some of this editing, as he always does, as he puts the shows together and helps us get it out on some of these platforms. So if you could drop in maybe some hip-hop references, because he is a hip-hop head, and the first one did not have any, well, it had maybe some light hip-hop references, but not some totally hip-hop references. So I know that's asking for a lot, but can I have a poem with some hip-hop references? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of throw this one. I just want to kind of take it over to a different realm because uh, you haven't experienced me uh, doing uh, more storytelling and, and a kind yeah. of a different form of it. And I give a shout-out to the Poetry Slam Nation that I was a big part of in, um, you know, in the days and, of course, to all the Bull City Poets of uh, uh, G and, uh, you know, uh, Dasan and, and the whole crew up there. Um, but this is a, a poem called Lava Pools of Cereal. Okay, cool. It was early morning when we still were rubbing the stars from our hip-hop eyes. And it didn't matter if it was cosmic, sunny, or heavy rainfall skies, as long as the cupboards in the refrigerator contained the ingredients, all of us rug rat shorties knew Mama went to the grocery store to stock up on some more cocoa puffs and cornflakes, alien pop, and yokai cereal cakes. It was almost like we took it back to the Wu-Tang Clan, Dr. Dre, and Tupac, but it was those generic 10-pound bags. That kept us munching our doggo tails wagged as our eyes were on a quest listening to Daffy Duck talking jive or Matty Mouse super creative drive to keep the cartoon universe in order so the roadrunner would always get across the border by outwitting the coyote with mischief, mayhem, and comedy. To let bugs take the great Sunday pulpit in that cipher around where give Elmer a sermon about how the Looney Tunes kingdom no matter anyone's differences when the credits rolled 
We all stood as one nation under African bombarder and cool herc and all of the nations under grooved George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic. It was a chuckle or a laugh, adventure of a mouse and a cat that transported us in imaginations on weekends. Where Friday night we went to bed early, really didn't sleep as we waited urgently for the first peak of the sun, and then we'd pack up the pillows and color up around everyone around bowls of milky sugar and television rays that began our serial morning cartoon shootout days. If the round bowl spoon helm be served up Captain Crutch or Fruit Loops that worked out even for lunch, or if it was all about leprechauns and our lucky charms on Saturday mornings, we never set our alarms. We always knew if we had a bad week with all-time lows, come Saturday morning, we would be like all Cheerios, floating in lava pools, kicking on the edge of a sofa old school, but most of the time with fam or best buds, the time to kick it at a parade arcade movie time rodeo action pack of good old-fashioned fun, where all you needed to know is in between the couch pillows and the nightstand willows, the carpet-colored ruby red was lava fire. So to get to the love seat, you had to aim a little higher than the reclining chair that didn't care if you came crashing on down like an orca with a ginormous grin and a fin that could knock you over into lava beds of red clovers. So most of it just piled up on each other, like we were on a mission in a cartoon helicopter, like we were in a cipher around a bonfire and spitting rhymes across the universe. We were scoping out new animated creatures with comedic and supernatural features, adventures, stories, and twisted funny plots. And we grinned ear to ear, and I mean, a lot. It was a time we knew we could all feel the same as Daffy would show us through entertainment frames that life is just a series of carnival games. And you can choose your flavor in any shape, size, or hue. You can choose Eminem and the hip-hop nation and move us all back to where we find, you know, uh, Malcolm X used to speak right into the words and and Eldridge would sit in his jail cell and write haiku, and that was the beginning of hip-hop because a good friend of mine loves haiku. Her name is Sonia Sanchez. And she knew we could make it on through to continue getting away like the roadrunner in every possible scenario to splash and swing low sweet Cheerios. And on any given day, we can make it to the Tasmanian Devil Mile, a week of Elmer Fudd trials to exaggerate the winds with a stimpy smile to know strange but heartfelt kids fit in. And when Bart said... He wants to win within. It's Lisa's ability to use her intelligence to brave the daily battles of Brutus's ignorance to bring out Bam Bam's innocence and Elroy's intelligence to Scooby Doo's curiosity and Shrouder's virtuosity to Popeye's empowering spinach to win all of us hearts of damsels and distressed lineage as Snoopy and Albert and the Rascals Gang and Fat. Albert, who showed us how to kick it and how to hang through the Saturday news that rang a back wound blues and turned our soggy magic clover flowers into reports on the hour of hostages and the cuts and falls that needed mom's loving care bandages to the Monday morning garbage trucks to the mayhem and the shift stomping trucks. The living room I grew up in. You see, it only had one small couch in a fireplace. It had a grand piano. It had a few music stands and single window doors where the moonlight did glow, and Saturday mornings were filled with recital tones, the repetition of the music, of the movement of the poem. And you see, there was no television or barcode boxes, no bowls of spinning cascades, just chromatic meters keeping that constant rhythm laid and the sheets of notes. And the hip-hop music, the funkified way to be, was sugary sweet and was animated in my eye's eye and had me riding my 808 heartbeat. 
But after my father passed, it was like the music left with him, and our living room became silent, neat, and void of the wild, wild wind. So as the world spins its bowls and platters, kids are going up in a world void of the Mad Hatter, who had remedies the patchwork of what hurts, to the odd shapes of not fitting into all these social networks, because their living rooms were not filled with adventurous cartoons, and on the day most adults have weak ends, to the days most of us seem to break and bend, our bills to see beyond our bills do, the securities inside me and you that Rocky and Bill Winkle showed us as just a lava rock leap away, as Snoopy and Scooby showed us how to have fun as they teach us to always be in wonder, to ride like a creature straight into hurricanes of thunder, and to be the earthquake like rugrats and doozers when they rump, rattle, and shake, looking at this life like a carnival ride, a Saturday morning cartoon flight beyond the days where the emotions go astray and we regret yesterday's instead of knowing that we're all care bearers. And we all have lucky charms. You know, they had less nutrition than harm. Those vicious sugar brigades that tried to beat us with hand grenades filled with diabetes. We would always have those memories. And then join our living space on a cartoon adventure away from the daily pace into a hyperdrive flight in the beyond. And I will always remember that we didn't need those stinking alarms to rise before the dawn. <laughs> wow. I love that point. It's interesting you mentioned the alarms because I was doing a conference this weekend that missed or got up late for one of the uh, days, still made it in time to start the conference, but it was the alarm and not having the alarm that the person who put that conference went off and got me an alarm. So I'm actually staring at my alarm because they were like, no, we can't have you missed the last two days. You need an alarm. I'm like, no, I'm natural. I don't need alarms. I can get up naturally. And I got up naturally for you and your event. I was just a little bit late, not all the way late because the actual starting time was 8 a.m., not 7.30. So I was technically was still on time, but it's it's just interested how those alarms. Uh, I see but the ironic thing. Uh, IPC is that the alarm is totally unplugged. Because even though he got it to me and I used it that one next day, I'm not an alarm kind of guy. So that alarm is still sitting there unplugged, and I don't think it's going to get plugged up tonight either. Because I usually believe in the, the natural way of waking up, and definitely believe that that's the way everybody should wake up, particularly if they're on that creative journey that both you and I are on as part of this new renaissance. So IPC, I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Hope that you can come back. Definitely looking forward to the live stream version in September and everything. And we'll, uh, I think we got that slated for the 3rd uh, September, but I'll send you the link for that. That's more of the audio slash visual version. But I thoroughly enjoyed it as I always enjoy your presence. And I know that folks will enjoy catching the reruns. And I am not as good as Dean, as I said, but I know that we're on Spreaker, on uh, Google um play on uh, definitely uh, tune in and a lot of the other platforms as well, even one out of India. I know it begins with a J, but I can't think of the name, but there are several platforms that they're looking for. Pretty much all the places that you will find your podcast at, we are being replayed at, including iHeart. So I know that that's a way that a lot of times people will put it. So if they're looking for it and they look for Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, you will find it. And this time it was Straight Talk with IPC and Mark. But we had a great conversation, a thoroughly enjoyable one 
have seen some of the back work that Dean has to do because usually he would be the one screening the calls and definitely we probably would have brought Dan in still as we did, but hopefully he'll be joining us on the 13th. But I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to more great conversations. Always enjoy seeing you in the clubhouse space. And if you've got any last parting shots of words of encouragement, give to, to the people right now and then we'll hit the end episode button. But definitely always you give me joy and I always enjoy uh, being in your presence, whether it's on the phone or whether it's as we are right now in this podcast land. Yeah, I'd like to leave you with a haiku, but I also like to apologize for swearing. I don't know why I do that because I normally don't swear. I don't know you got it out of me or in the story, so I apologize. Hopefully they get bleeped out if that was not appropriate. Um, but I'll leave you with a haiku. Okay. Anyone tells you you can't fly, stretch arms wide. And flip them the bird. <laughs> I love that. And no, B and D do not care about a couple of uh, choice words coming out and all of that. So it'll probably still be in the show and everything. But I know that as far as <laughs> your brand, and if we have to, we'll do that also. But yeah, we've had other people, including maybe even Desan, that have slipped in some words like that as well. So don't even <laughs> hesitate to worry about it. And I definitely look forward to catching you in the clubhouse streets, but also catch you on the live stream sometime in September. Your energy always puts a big smile on my face and I consider you to be one of my brothers just like I consider G to be part of my family as well but I definitely consider you one of my brothers like I do Desan and a number of others so truly enjoyed having you and truly enjoyed our conversation Arigato thank you very much no problem All right, bye-bye. May I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in.